Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation, recorded in September 2019, I speak with a dear colleague, Ugo Bardi. Ugo's a leading collapsologist. He's a prolific author. He's a professor of physical chemistry at the University of Florence. Um, his books, he wrote The Limits to Growth Revisited, a report to the Club of Rome, Extracted, How the Quest for Mineral Wealth is Plundering the Planet, uh, The Seneca Effect, Why Growth is Slow but Collapse is Rapid, and then most recently, his 2020 book, Before the Collapse, A Guide to the Other Side of Growth. Ugo is just a fun guy to be with, and you'll see, we had, we had fun in this conversation. Well, Ugo, I first encountered your work about four, maybe five years ago. I think maybe four years ago. And I think the first, my first introduction to you was actually an exchange that you and John Michael Greer did on the next 10 billion years. And that was, yeah, quite, that's, that was quite fun. <laughs> that's a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And so that, then I started reading your blogs pretty religiously. Uh, I may have missed a few, but uh, I read regularly. Uh, your blog. And uh, in fact, it now is called Cassandra's Legacy. And what was it before? I forgot. No, it was always was uh, Cassandra's Legacy. There was a period when I tried to link it, link it to my work on depletion. And so oh, I called the resource depletion or something, or yes, resource yes, crisis, yes. something like that. But it didn't work. People don't want to know about, <laughs> about resource depletion. <laughs> and then I like Cassandra more. So I went back. Yes, exactly. Well, one of the things that I've so appreciated about you specifically is that you really understand the patterns, many of the patterns of the rise and fall of civilizations and resource exhaustion and overshoot and all that. And yet you keep such a uh, joyous, most of the time, a joyous, uh, ah, thank uh, you, Michael. That's spirit. very nice of you. But I don't know, how long have you been a catastrophist? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I call myself a collapsitarian, and I think I've been there pretty collapsitarian. Collapsitarian. About... Oh, that's new. I never heard of that. Yeah, for about five or six years, I think. Yeah, okay. I'm more, a bit older than that. So uh, there is this legend outside our community that uh, collapsniks, if you like to use this term, they are gloomy, they're sad, they always come around like, ah! <laughs> But the most cheerful people I know are, are in this group, like you. Most of the time, I would say 95% of any given day, week, month, uh, or even year, I stay very positive and, and I'm inspired and I'm excited to be alive and grateful yeah. to be alive at this I, time in history, even though there are so many uh, uh, sobering and, uh, and, and in many cases scary or challenging uh, things on the horizon. If you would, for those who don't, are not familiar with you and your work, um, help us really help the, the listener or the viewer of this to really sort of get who you are, what you bring to the world, what you're passionate about and, and concerned about at this time. It, I think I'm not different than most people. I mean, we are all over 60, as I think you are too. And so we have our story, our experience goes through the second half of the 20th century and somehow we arrived to here. So we all had the same experiences and I was 
thinking about that because I was preparing, thinking about what to say about this interview. And so I was thinking, okay, you, the, the, the 20th century was interesting, very interesting, because we were born in a period of optimism, or at least in the tail of the period of optimism, there was the um, travel to the moon, the moon landings in 1968 was possibly the top level of the optimism. And I was there. I watched landing in TV, probably you did the same. Many people who are now in their 50s and 60s, they saw it. It's interesting that so many people disbelieve this, but that's another story. So what do we do? We have this century, the half century or more than a half century of optimism. Everything is going well. We are rich, we're powerful, we will conquer the solar system, we will go to all the stars and all the science fiction ideas, and then something starts going wrong. See, we saw the first oil crisis, 1970s, and I think nobody understood it. Still today, people don't understand what it was about, but it was big. Second oil crisis, 1980, and that's something strange. What was wrong? And nobody understood it. So there were wars, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, 1991, and that was big and nobody understood it. I went to, to Russia several times in the 90s and I tried to understand, but I didn't. I went to Russia, I saw everything that was happening. I had Russian friends. I was looking to see something, what's happening? The Russians didn't understand it. The Westerners did not understand it. And it also always is somebody evil doing things. <laughs> we don't understand things, it is the devil. Okay, first oil crisis, it is the, the Arab sheikhs. Second oil crisis, it is the Iranian Ayatollah. Russian collapse, it is, for the Russian, Russians, it is, it is Gorbachev. <laughs> for us, he, he's a hero, but for the Russians, he was a, an idiot. He sold Russia to the, to the Westerners, to the evil Westerners. And then, and then there was 2001, there were more. There was 1999, there was the Serbian bombing and an evil guy named Milosevic. And then there was 2001. I was in the United States. At that point, really I started to think something is badly wrong here. <laughs> and I think for many people, it was the start of uh, trying to understand and many people found different answers, which is normal, it is reasonable, it is, for me, I can tell you, first it was peak oil, the discovery of peak oil, because the same day of the collapse of the towers in New York, I was in Berkeley, I was uh, working at the Lawrence Berkeley lab on oil, <laughs> I am a chemist, I used to research on oil chemistry, I was there for this purpose. And so I saw this in TV in the morning, Berkeley, it was in the morning. And then, um, and then that was a big shock. And you, maybe you know Berkeley, Berkeley used to be a town of bookstores and libraries. There were so many books in Berkeley, it's unbelievable. It was before the internet age. So the wonderful thing about Berkeley, you can walk around the city and see books everywhere. Yeah. I know, I've been, I've been there and I, and I, <laughs> yeah. I have enjoyed it's that. It's fantastic. So when, when I was shocked by what I've seen in TV, I took a walk across town. I found a bookstore, 
I remember exactly what it was. Now I cannot tell you the name right now, but if I go back to Berkeley, I can find it. So I walked inside and say, what, what do I have in mind today? And I found a book. Wow, what is this? Peak oil, a book written by an American geologist. Uh, it, was named, it was named Kenneth DeFace. It was titled The View from the Hubbard Peak. I had no idea what was the Hubbard Peak. Picked up this book, I said, okay, follow the towers. Peak oil, the, the, the concept of peak oil didn't exist at the time. I, I, I use the term now, but it was called the Hubbard Peak mm -hmm. or the oil peak. Then it was mm -hmm. Colin Camp, Campbell coined the term, it was very popular, peak oil. But at that time, you just said the Hubbard Peak. and say, okay, they, this is the explanation. And so that's, that was the start. There was a start, but peak oil turned out to be just an element of the whole story. The whole story was much more complex than just peak oil. Peak oil went a bit out of fashion, which is maybe correct, because it was a marginal element of a much wider, much wider set of ideas, which are all part of, I think, what we call big history. Big history doesn't mean to go all the way back to the Big Bang. You just go back to the origins of our civilization and you, and you study how ancient civilization relate with the resources they use to keep going. And I started this, it was September 11, 2001. I started thinking about that. And uh, I think it was eight years later, I think it was in 2009, we organized a meeting in Italy, in on top of a hill, somewhere in the Apennini Mountains. I still remember the food. It was absolutely great. We had so much fun, so much for catastrophists being, <laughs> being um, gloomy. We had great food, great people, great experience on top of the, of the mountains. And it was a great conference. And, um, and uh, the, the chairman of the session where I was supposed to give a talk, told me, Hugo, what would you like to speak about? And I said, I want to speak about the Roman Empire. And I had no idea what I was going to say when I, when I said that. Then before the conference, I started getting ready. And I always want to start, you know, like with Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Friend, Romans, compatriots, I'm not here to praise Caesar, but to bury him. <laughs> and I did that. <laughs> but then... That was great, absolutely great. And, and uh, I, I found the key of our modern history to the Roman history because might be casual, maybe because I'm Italian. Italians are still somewhat closed to the Roman, yes, um, which may be very stupid. <laughs> you do very stupid thing if you think you are a Roman Empire emperor, <laughs> like Mussolini did long ago. But, uh, but uh, there is still a certain keenness. And so... And so my idea, what I keep working on, is that everything is already written. What happened to the Romans is happening to us. Just like we are not understanding what's going on, the Romans did not. Not a few, I think, did. Just very few people. They could not do anything to stop it. But there is a fascinating story that I don't know if you, if you read the story of Empress Galla Placidia. No. She was the last Western emperor 
slash empress who actually had power. Yeah. Because the last, uh, but she, she, she died in four, 455, no, 450, I'm still thinking. These things I remember because it's uh, fascinating that is, but um, she was the last person who could do something for the empire. And you know what, I think she was the only person perhaps with some power in the Roman empire who understood what was going on. The others didn't. You read of Marcus Aurelius, he left his diary and it's clearly, he said, I'm, defending the empire, it's by duty, good, but he could not understand what's going on. And Galla Placidia was a fascinating figure. I, I, I think she, she understood it exactly. The empire was collapsed. She could not stop it. So she decided to push it, give it a little push over the edge and make it fall forever. She did. It's a long story though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you know, my wife Connie um, also. Uh, I read aloud your posts to her, so we both experience them. And she drew my attention this week to something that was written in the Atlantic um, by a pretty famous writer, James Fallows. Uh, the end of the Roman Empire wasn't that bad. Maybe the end of the American one won't be either. And she she asked. She wanted me to specifically ask you if you had seen that or not. No, I don't. I, I had not seen it. Um, yeah. Can you summarize it a little yeah. bit? Well, I, I'll simply send it to you uh, afterwards. Mm. But, but because you've written on, you know, the, the 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 importance of resources. In fact, if you could take just a, just a couple of minutes and share sort of the essence of your 2014 book, Extracted, how the quest for mineral wealth is plundering the planet. And then also take a few minutes to sum up the essence of the Seneca effect, because those are really two very substantial books related to this post-noon conversation. And I really want to make sure that people, uh, well, what I want you to do is, is entice do, people to actually take the time. I, yeah, as I said, we started with peak oil. Oil yeah. was, the, was supposed to be the fundamental resource, but then we found, I found other people working with me, I mean, there's a movement of ideas that oil is not everything. It is one of the many mineral resources we use. And so we moved onward and we tried to understand how the mineral resources are related to civilization. And for instance, some civilizations were based strongly on mineral resources. Others were more agricultural uh, civilization. The Roman Empire, it's a typical example because it was based so strictly not on oil, but on gold. That was one of the reasons that is written, not in my book on minerals, which is the first one extracted in 2014. This is a survey of how the minerals have created and destroyed civilizations. There is a, a chapter on gold and the Roman empire, but it is more expanded and described in the second book, which is the Seneca effect, this, the introduction the first chapter is about how the Roman Empire was destroyed yes. by depletion. And initially, as I say, it was oil. Then we expanded to mineral resources. Then we expanded even more natural resources because you see the interaction. It's very complex. There's a lot of things that go on in a civilization. Things move, people find things, exploit them, create wealth and capital and capitalism appears. And then you start with political um, structures and then this political structure need wealth 
to keep going and this wealth has to be found somewhere. It's, it's, a, it's a very complex story. And um, indeed, as you said, if you study mineral resources alone, then you may get a little bit depressed because you find this thermodynamic result, okay, it took millions of years to get the ores, the veins, the wells, uh, the deposits, everything we exploit, and a huge amount of energy to create these deposits. But then we take the minerals from deposits, disperse them all over the place, and, uh, and then it's over. I mean, the mineral age is limited. The mineral age, as we intend it, is limited. So this yeah. is a bit pessimistic. There, there are two Spanish researchers wrote a book with a horrible title. They're smart people, but Thanatia. Have you seen that? Thanatia means the age of death or death, something like this, from the Greek word Thanatos, mm -hmm. death. And they wrote this book saying, okay, when we run out concentrated mineral resources, it's over forever for humankind. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll be able to repurpose <laughs> sort of the, the uh, salvage industrial era possibly, unless the abrupt climate change does us in really quickly. But it seems to me that we'll be able to repurpose some of that, although some of it requires a lot of energy to, to rework. But yeah, exactly. It's, it's all right, it's all right. We don't have to be so pessimistic, not at all. The system has enormous possibilities. We have developed civilizations based on certain kinds of mineral resources. We can do different things with different resources, doing different things that the future is open. We have, um, I think as human, a human I, I'm not pessimistic, those people who speak about the near term human extinction, which is um, not very interesting. <laughs> well, I, mean, you, you, <laughs> I, I think that most of us in this series at least, Recognize certainly if we've been tracking on um, overshoot and understand yeah. carrying capacity and understand that there there are certain things it seems to me that are inevitable. One of them is that the human population uh, of we're, seven and a half billion or eight billion, cons, whatever, we're, we're going to see collapse. a serious decline. We'll collapse that. absolutely. There is no way that we can keep so many people yes, in, exactly. on this planet for so many reasons. On my blog, on the first page of my blog, there is written on the, on the first page, always plan for the worst case hypothesis. So there is this possibility that we go extinct. We plan for the possibility, it is a possibility. We don't want to, it to happen, but we will never know if it happens. Yeah, but and that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm, th those who are more pessimistic, I'm grateful for their work, even if I don't share every one of their conclusions, because as William Catton showed in the last chapter of his book, Overshoot, it really is why you have that on your website. Planning for the worst is actually the thing that's going to give us the best possibility, the best exactly. chance of doing the right thing. It is an ongoing exploration. It's minerals, it's uh, natural resources, and how the system moves on. And the Seneca effect, you can see it here on my, on my uh, T-shirt, you see, means that the system, we discovered this, that we, we still need a formal thermodynamic explanation, but it is a fact. The system goes on in bumps. They don't grow like this. They go up, down, up and down. But there is something that I discovered recently, which is I call the Seneca rebound. It means 
Seneca himself said this, said something like, every beginning is the result of an older ruin. <laughs> and so he understood that you have to, you have in a certain way you have to collapse to, to keep going, to restart. It's all part of how the system dissipates entropy. And this is very technical, but it is the way the universe works. Yes. So ruin is not a ruin, collapse is not a ruin. It's part of the, of the movement in a certain direction. And I do think we are moving in a certain direction. We don't yeah. know where we are going, but I do believe we are going somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, you mentioned earlier big history, and that's something that, that Connie and I have actually immersed ourselves in for many, many years, the universe story or epic of evolution or big history. In recent years, I've come to see that big history ne needs to be, in my opinion, tempered by green history or environmental history, where what we call the environment is not merely the backdrop for human history, but it's an active agent, the climate and, and all the other aspects of the living world are actually an active force that uh, in many cases determine or certainly influence, let's put it that way, um, the course of, of human history and that to the degree that we align ourselves with the way nature works, with the Tao or the way, as Teddy Goldsmith used to speak about, um, then we have the more likely chance of moving into a healthy pro-future uh, um, relationship with the, the living world to the degree that we think it's all about us um, and think that we're going to last forever, then we create very, very serious problems. But I think I, I, it's not really different. The environmental history and big history are the same thing. It's, uh, we started to understand, to have a view of history, which is evolutionary, which is based on, on the way structures self-organize, grow in complexity, and dissipate entropy. Yeah. Um, this is something that I'm thinking right now is very complex for me because I'm not very smart actually. <laughs> if I were smarter than this, I could understand this. But, but you see the system, the earth system, I'm starting to discover it right now, right in the last few months, is so resilient, so much able to withstand change. That's really, 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 I, I'm optimistic. Maybe yeah. humans will not survive, but the system still has a billion years to go, and the, it will, will do things that we cannot even imagine. Exactly, and that's, that's really where I have, and many people in this particular series that I'm interviewing, have, have really grounded their, their trust, their, uh, their emotional state of being, let's put it that way, <clears throat> is that whether humans exist, um, and go extinct in the next 50 years, or whether we exist another two or three million years, um, we will go extinct at some point. And the system, the biosphere, the ecosphere, species come and go, life continues. And when we shift out of a human-centered or anthropocentric to a life-centered or ecocentric perspective and trust that process, trust ecology, trust evolution, trust the whole process, then it becomes something that we can relax into, even though our hearts often, at least myself, feel grief and sadness for some of the things that are ending. That's just normal as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe we, we, don't, we don't know. It's, uh, humans are so strange, so special, so nasty at times, as, as we all know. But, uh, you know, my next book will be called, the title will be Superorganism. 
super organism humankind's next million years <laughs> there's a story about the gaian gaian idea what is gaia and uh, james lovelock idea that she's a super organism or not a super organism or a, a population and what is a population and uh, what is god is god an organism is god a population or what <laughs> so it's, 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 it's so interesting, this field. Uh, it's unbelievably interesting. I can't understand how people can spend the, their lives uh, in the financial world trying to get rich. It's so much more interesting yes. to be a scientist, I think. Anybody listening to this or watching this that's only new, only recently coming into an understanding of collapse, of contraction, of resource depletion, and so forth, um, Share a little bit of your story of, of not just the positive things, but where, where were times of difficulty, if there were any, and then what helped you through those? Well, that's a, that's a difficult question because every one of us, many of us are evolving through um, a period of about 50, 60 years in which you change your mind, you discover new things. And for me, there was this moment of epiphany uh, with the 9-11 with the attacks. But apart from that, I think it was quite smooth because it is part of the way we were, we saw the world. We all come from a generation who saw a, a very optimistic idea of expansion. In, uh, in space, we all read science fiction, and then and then we go to the moon, we go to Mars. Like Elon Musk, he is younger than us, but he still belongs to that generation. We want to go to Mars, but then I think, I think we discovered things which are much deeper, much more interesting, much um, a, a kind of expansion which is not just going to Mars. Um, you know, the science fiction of the 1950s, the 1960s, uh, like Isaac Asimov, uh, these kind of people say, so people take spaceships and go to another star, but they are the same people and they only have a spaceship. But I don't think this is the most interesting thing. I think we don't need a spaceship. We need different people. And uh, so uh, you're right in asking the question, how about young people, young people who start now understanding or trying to understand what is happening. And this is a very difficult, a very difficult moment to understand what is going on. Because you, excuse me if I go back to the Roman Empire. But there was a period when the Romans were asking themselves questions. Seneca himself, he was critical. He was trying to understand what was going on, but this time Tacitus and uh, Suetonius, uh, other authors were trying to understand what's going on. Because the, clearly we're discussing first century as this, uh, first century after Christ was the moment of peak of the empire. Things were going well, but something was wrong, was clear. And so these people, or even people, old people like, like you and me, were trying to understand, writing books which are right to us, like Tacitus is clear, he's trying to understand what's wrong with the empire. But then you move into the next century and this disappears. There is no more debate inside the empire. The debate, the, the new ideas come from the outside. It is Christianity. Christianity takes over the empire, 
they uh, were not the Christians were not so interested in in the empire anymore. Okay, it's going to fall. So what? And they were interested in a new kind of organization, a new kind of man, a new kind of man who could live in different conditions after, because the Romans were terribly afraid to lose the empire. You can see it from what they wrote. If the empire falls, what are we going to do? There is going to be no law, no, no army, no, no tribunals, no properties, no guarantees for us to, to live. How about that wait? You have to change. You cannot keep all the old structure forever, but, but there was an interesting period in which Christians were the catastrophists of that time, saying, God has got to be repent because you're going to be destroyed and things like us. And they were, I think, rather cheerful too. And they had this new idea of building a new society, a new world that they did. They did, but they never, neither cared so much about the old empire. They, they thought it was old stuff. They didn't care so much, except maybe Augustine when he wrote The City of God, but that's, that was still very early. We are still during the period of the, when the Roman Empire was still powerful. So I think it is the same. We are going in a period in which the debate that has going on up to now about whether we are collapsing, how fast we are collapsing, can we prevent the collapse? What should we do to prevent the collapse? It will be superseded by the fact that collapse will go on by itself. Yeah. The young people will not find this so interesting to debate about peak oil because there won't be any more oil for them. So why, why, why do we have to, what oil, what is oil? Ah, yeah, the stuff you use, uh, we would like to have it, but, but uh, they will not understand why. Say because the sheikhs, the Yatollahs, the catastrophes, the leftists, the Greens, the Putin and Assad and uh, Saddam, and uh, they will be mythologized into, into figures, monsters of all. But, but they won't care so much. And so I think this is something that we see now because the catastrophes today are people over the, in their 40s, typically, 50s and 60s. And the young people have big problems of survival. So they're not so greatly interested in that. And so I think it's a cycle too. Maybe it yeah. will return. In the future, we will understand more, like just like for us, during the Middle Ages, um, they rediscovered the Roman Empire. And they started writing, keeping uh, the, the records of the old empire. And I think this is what we will do too. Maybe a century or two from now, we will rethink of all what was done now, see the mistakes done, <laughs> unavoidable, I think. One of the things I, I read in the BBC back in February uh, was written by Luke Kemp. It was part of their Deep Civilization series, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was called, Are We on the Road to Civilizational Collapse? And it was written, mm -hmm. as I said, by Luke Kemp. And he, he, talks, he, he actually had a chart that showed 88 previous civilizations between uh, 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 3000 uh, BCE and 1000 of the Common Era. So that, that 4000 year period, um, or maybe it was 4000 BCE, I forget. But anyway, it's a four or 5000 year period where he showed 88 civilizations. And, you know, again, some of those common patterns of how civilizations contract and collapse. 
and that it's never the, you know, the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop as the D Dark Mountain Manifesto uh, in included. One of the uh, places we find ourselves now, certainly one of the places that I find myself doing is trying to articulate a message that um, can be inspiring to young people that helps them deal with the challenges of our time to ultimately move through whatever grief they need to move through or whatever anger, and then come through to that post-doom place of inspired local yeah. action, making a difference where they can, to have as healthy relationships as they can, to um, be engaged in what gives life meaning and joy, even in the midst of contraction, because that's clearly where we are. And we have been lucky to be living in a period of expansion, and now we will be living in a period of contraction. We can hope that the contraction will be not so terrible that some of the worst uh, prediction will come true. But, but uh, living in a period of contraction is as a big, big, big challenge. And yeah. I, think, I think we need new ideas, new concepts, new, and we are developing that. I mean, peak oil, we, I started with peak oil, which was a very interesting, very fundamental key to understand what was going on. But I think over time, what we have seen that the concept of climate change, global warming to face to, to similar things is much more encompassing the whole story. It's, uh, it's wider, broader, more dangerous, longer range, and we can live without oil. That's not a problem. But climate change is really, is really affecting all perception of everything. It's a real revolution in thought. So this is why it is so difficult for so many people to accept it. Yes, it because no. really challenges everything we think about our world. We may need to change our, our mind completely in so many things. And, um, and it may be the key climate change for the, for the climate change for the change we need as a civilization, as the new civilization that will emerge out of ours because because it's normal it's, it's fine sometimes you go smooth sometimes you go down and then up it's, we will see what happens but i think humankind still has a future and maybe a bright future of some kind the issue of going to mars or wherever i mean you still got humans and human nature so i want to ask a question related to human nature and um, you know, how does your sense of inborn human strengths and limitations affect your interpretation of our societal and cultural deterioration? That is, could this descent have been avoided, or do you think in some way it was an inevitable? Everything can be avoided, but it is not necessarily a good thing. As uh, one thing that I expect express my, my idea in, uh, in my book about the Seneca effect is that you see this curve. This is the curve, the Seneca curve. You go up, you go up, you go up, you go up, and then bang, you go down. Now you can play with the, with the models that provide this curve. This is not drawn by hand. It's the result of a dynamic model that creates this shape for a complex system. Now you can, one of the first papers I wrote on this subject, you could tweak the parameters. And um, it was supposed to be a model of people living on an island. I was thinking of uh, Easter Island, but uh, not necessarily that. People try to avoid it. So we try to do things that, uh, that avoid peaking and going down. But what you find is that the more you try to avoid, 
peaking, you can keep going for a little while more, then you go down faster, bang. Yes, because exactly. the curve is the result of physical constraints. You cannot avoid them. And that's the thing that we have to learn. We are very smart as human beings. We have um, great possibilities in the sense that we can collaborate. We have this incredible possibility of speaking to each other. Right? It's no other creature on this planet can do that. And it's, it's unbelievable that we can do that. <laughs> Yes. Doing that, we have gigantic possibilities. We don't need spaceships or, or things like that. And my sense is that those possibilities will be curtailed, uh, or those possibilities are only genuine, real possibilities if we, as you say, uh, honor the constraints, honor the honor the limits that we have to. I, I think honoring limits. I call them grace limits. That is, there's a limit to any system to provide benefits for any organism. And when that organism exceeds the limits, uh, the physical, ecological uh, uh, limits, then there are consequences to pay. Um, and so I think honoring, uh, when I look at the difference between sustainable and unsustainable cultures, and I get this partly through uh, Edward Goldsmith, Teddy Goldsmith's work um, in the stable society and the way, where he talked about that's the fundamental role of lifeways or what we would call religion, but it wasn't religion as one institution. It was right, basically the moral voice of, of, of society was ensuring limits are honored and limits are that I interpret the mythic story of uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, not as eating an apple, but as dishonoring the limits of primary reality. And then we, there are certain inevitable consequences from that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's what you, you find in these models, which is fascinating. They tend to do exactly that. Complex systems tend to adapt to the environment, but also to affect the environment in such a way to find a condition which we sometimes you could call equilibrium, but we could call more correctly homeostasis. And we are seeing um, development of a set of ideas which sees the the whole biota, not just humans, there were humans inserted into everything as, as an element of stability of the whole ecosystem. Right now, this stability has been broken, broken mainly by our ability of using mineral resources. And this has been a disaster. But as I say, in my book extracted, it is temporary. Will last a few hundred years, already lasted a few hundred years, will last maybe a hundred years more, but then, we will have to learn how to build a civilization without depletable mineral resources. I think we can do that. I think we can build an unbelievably complex, beautiful, fantastic, spectacular civilization, which doesn't burn coal, doesn't burn oil or gas. That's, that was a, an interesting idea, but it didn't work very well, as, as we all know. Well, I, I'm not sure I share uh, fully your optimism on the on the civilization thing because I I see civilization itself as um, that is human centered civilizations uh, uh, as sort of inherently unstable or unsustainable, and the only form of humanity that I can imagine being truly sustainable is one that lives with an honoring of limits and lives with an honoring of the biosphere or the ecosphere or the larger system in which we operate as a greater thou rather than a lesser it. And, and so I, uh, how complex, I know one of the little books, it's a little 75 page book that I read some years ago that I still consider priceless by William Ophels. 
uh, called Immoderate Greatness, Why Civilizations yeah, I saw, Fail. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a gem because yeah. it sums up in 75 pages what we can yeah, learn yeah, that, about. That's the, way, that's the way the books should be. We all will always write too long books. <laughs> <laughs> well, say, say, because you're one of the experts in this field, say a little bit about some of the uh, more, I mean, you've already touched on it a little bit, but Michael, what, are but we, lessons, what are some of the lessons that we can learn from the collapse? Yeah, of but, but, but there is an example of a civilization which was stable and lasting and within the limits. Can you, can you see it? It's a question for you. Uh, I don't see civilization. I see cultures that can do that. Culture, but it's not very different from, uh, it depends what you mean, of course. I call it civilization, but it is Western oh. Europe western europe during the middle ages yes. Yes. the middle ages was a great period and it's unbelievable how we we despised it using propaganda just one thing that uh, that uh, you know ask anybody when was the time when witches were burned everybody will tell you middle ages but no you know this witches were burned starting with the 16th century the Enlightenment. And during the Middle Ages, when witches were not burned, during the Roman times, yes, later than the Middle Ages, Middle Ages was a gentle period, it was uh, an age in which people were learning how to live within the limits of what they had. And uh, we have to rethink about this thing because our propaganda is so strong that we tend to blame people for things they never did. <laughs> Oh, well, That's the, the case of the middle, the middle Ages. I think my, I have in mind an idea, a manifesto for a new Middle Ages. Maybe you would want to sign it. <laughs> I would sign that in a heartbeat, I would think, because I yeah. think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, those champions of the myth of perpetual progress put yes. down the Middle Ages. Yeah, um, and I, I think reclaiming the wisdom of the Middle Ages could be a, it could be a good book. You, you might consider that. Yeah, that, 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 we, we, I, I, one, one more book. That, that's already too many books, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, you, would, you would be a good one, I think. Uh, maybe you could co-author it with, uh, with a historian that's an expert in the Middle Ages. But you know, Michael, we wrote, I wrote a book for Springer and I finished it in July. Then I started another book and I finished it last week. <laughs> Oh, really? You just finished <laughs> another one last week? Wow. Another one. It is called The Empty Sea. The future of the blue economy. It is in Italian. We will never, you will never read it, <laughs> but maybe we will translate it. So it's uh, writing books is easy because it must be easy. See how many books I have behind me. <laughs> everybody writes books. Seven, seven billion people. If if everybody writes one book, we have a seven billion books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that won't few. happen. But yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed at how prolific that you are and, and, and that you can be aware of such big patterns and keep just a joyful spirit. So that's one of the, that, I, I hope that becomes a, a post-doom uh, inspiration or way of being, that, that one can be joyful and on purpose, uh, even in the midst of contraction. Yeah, I think, I, you know, some people say we don't, should not have children uh, and things like that. But I, I, I just became a grandfather twice. I'm very happy about that. I mean, I, 
I would not be happy having uh, 10 grandsons and granddaughters, but, uh, but two, it's fine. I mean, I think, I think it's our duty to do that. Well, Ugo, any, any final things that you'd like to say? Anything that you want to share? You saw the questions that I posed. Anything that, uh, that you want to make sure that you, um, you know, get to share on? Uh, maybe, yes, one last thing. Uh, I was very impressed by something you wrote very impressed that you saw, you wrote that Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, I'm not sure I pronounce well these names, these medieval names, they did the, in the evolution of Christianity. Because Christianity was some idea that started in, in some ways and it, it, it changed, it evolved. And, and it made me think of the concept of religion. Religion is something that is not popular nowadays. But if you think of the origin of religion, I think we have to reconsider that. Incidentally, by the way, another removal or shift, blame shifting in our history is about the extermination of the Indians, especially in Mexico and, uh, and South America. They say that the church has been blamed. But not the church, not exterminate the Indians, where the, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British, but it was not there's this story that people were exterminated because they didn't want to convert to Christianity, which is absolutely false. They, they, they were exterminated because of, uh, of financial reason. They had to make room for, for the conquerors. And, so and the deliberate sharing of uh, blankets that were yeah. in many cases. Yeah, yeah that too, to the American Indians, to the North American Indians. But so we had, we have this bad propaganda against religion. I mean, it's, it was important for my generation to think we knew that the church was bad because they exterminated the Indians in South America. But it was not true, <laughs> wrong, a legend. And, um, Religion, as you I think, I think I, if I interpret you correctly, religion means to get together things. You know the origin, the origin of the world. Doesn't mean God. You don't mean to go to church to to pray, to repent, to confess your sins to a priest. Maybe, but that's that's a marginal thing. The concept of religion means that you collect things in a in a in a consistent consistent system of ideas and that's a religion and then it is based on faith but uh, I came just last week to rediscover the concept of faith because when I was a, a child I say you had to believe in God why do I have to believe in God because of faith and that made no sense to me but now it's starting to make sense not necessarily about God but it is knowledge if you want to know something, you must have a certain degree of faith. Faith means trust. Yeah. And that's what's happening. We are losing trust, like we are discussing the climate change. Why there is so much discussion that people, because people have no faith, no trust. I can show you the data, you are a, a denier, let's assume we say, uh, but this are these are the temperatures. Say, no, I don't believe you because I don't trust you. Yeah. And, we need a new faith, a new kind, some kind of faith. Maybe we use this word is charged in a certain way, but if you use trust, it's, uh, it's maybe because when you are religious, you trust people who heard the word of God, people who translated the word of God.
Yeah, I interpret faith in God as a mythic way of saying trust in reality, trust in exactly. life, trust in the way things are. And in so fact, my, my, the, the main legacy work that I've done in the last 10 years uh, since my book, Thank God for Evolution, 12 years ago, is, is this course, this uh, video discussion course that just came out called Pro Future Faith, The Prodigal Species Comes Home, uh, that I was, uh, it's sort of my attempt at uh, creating a Gaian religion or, or really articulating a faith, a trust in reality uh, that's grounded in science and grounded in ecology as the heart of theology. Um, exactly, and, exactly. Uh, Michael, Michael, you are the most advanced human being on this planet, <laughs> I think. <laughs> She <laughs> no, said something which is fantastic. You converted, you converted me. I said, what is, this? what is this? This is fantastic. This guy has understood everything. You have to integrate science and evolution into the concept of religion. And that's our task. Our direct people who yes. came will come after us. But I think that will be the future. That's my passion for sure. I, I, I appreciate the generosity of that sentiment. But. <laughs> no, but you know, sometimes you write things on the web, people read it, it may be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Because they may completely misunderstand you, but sometimes you, you inspire people. It's happened to me. Some people say, Professor, I've been inspired by something you wrote. Well, thank you. I, I can tell you, Michael, that I've been inspired by something you wrote. Mm. Well, Ugo, okay. thank you so much uh, for your work, for this time, for your spirit, um, and just uh, blessings on your continued uh, productivity okay. and, uh, and joy in life. Thank you very much, Michael. It was real a pleasure. I don't know if we will, we will ever meet in person, but who knows, maybe, maybe. maybe. Okay. okay, and have a nice day, and bye-bye. Uh, for more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.